We may be on YouTube, <clears throat> but my friends, please don't call me a televangelist. I got a couple chuckles because televangelists in our world carry a bad rap. <clears throat> or in the words of Judge Robert Daniel Potter, those of us who do have a religion are sick of being saps for money, grubbing preachers and priests. He said that at the conviction of one Jim Baker of the Praise the Lord Network, a huge televangelist of the late 80s and early 90s who embezzled uh, a few million dollars and was caught and gave the name of Jesus a very bad name. And I don't know about you, but I have lost count of the amount of people who complain about those money-hungry preachers, because that's all they do is we stand up here and we ask you for your money. But before we give preachers such a bad rap, can we at least acknowledge that money makes things complicated? It's the number one, number two argument that married people fight over. I don't know if you heard over this last weekend, some guy in Eugene drained his family's bank account and drove down I-5 chucking handfuls of $100 bills out the window. And about $200,000 were ejected across the freeway down in Eugene. Yeah, go look it up afterwards. Hopefully not right now, um, but afterwards. Money makes things complicated. So to take you guys and walk straight into the awkwardness, let's go there for a second. I, Jordan Hooten, I am on staff here at Family of Grace. You guys provide my income. You might say I am paid to be here, so this is what I make. Between income and housing, it's just over $59,000 is what, what I make. Let's own that. Beyond that, I have another line item, pastoral expenses. It means that I have money provided by you to go get coffee or to go eat a meal. I eat on your dime. Now, why would I want to walk into that and just own it for YouTube and the rest of the world to see? It's because God is much more comfortable talking about finances and making things clear than we are as an Americans. And when we come to the Bible particularly Leviticus 6 and 7, God is going to make things clear for the Israelites as far as what the priesthood is to get from the sacrifices. Let's make it clear. And in the words of Brene Brown, if clarity is kindness, let's just designate this is what they are entitled to and this is what they are not entitled to. And how does that change us as God's people? See, we Easter was last week, so maybe you've forgotten. But the book of Leviticus... It's a book full of rules and regulations, but let us not forget that it is rules and regulations embedded within a large story that begins in Genesis and our series through the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, goes through Deuteronomy. We go from creation in the Garden of Eden to the plains of Moab where Moses will die and the Israelites are on the edge of entering into the promised land underneath the leadership of Joshua and Leviticus falls at the thematic and literary center, how do we approach God, a holy God as sinful people? And Leviticus itself has this grand structure centered upon the day of atonement. We'll get there in two weeks. <clears throat> and so for many of us, it's not the most enjoyable thing to read. But I have used this illustration of a series of laws that include things like midi-chlorians, Beskar steel, the invisibility cloak, the one ring, Mjolnir, and the word Shazam, to highlight that we can read rules, and if we are attentive to the language, we can realize that they are telling a story. 
that there is, there is deep meaning behind what we read. And so in the book of Exodus, God tells Moses, as he is on top of the mountain <clears throat> meeting with God, God tells Moses, make everything according to the pattern that you've seen up here. Literally, work out my will on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we come to the rules and regulations of the tabernacle, we should expect that what we are seeing embodied here echoes or hints at divine realities. Things are more than what they seem on a surface level. And so Leviticus begins with five types of sacrifices, ways of approaching God, ways of of having your sins atoned for, having them covered, either purified or uh, atonement can also carry the idea of ransom from death, like to, to buy back. And so you have the burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin, and the guilt offerings. Or, as these Hebrew words can be also translated, the ascension, the tribute, the fellowship, the purification, and the reparation offering. And the best way to understand what these words mean is just to really immerse yourself in the scriptural story. How does the Bible use these terms? What, what connotations do they bring? But we've read about the sacrifices, and now we're going to read all about them again for the second time. So Yahweh said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this command. This is the priesthood. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body, and he shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. And then he's to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean. So if you're a priest in Israel, you need at least three outfits. You have your high royal garb that you use when making the sacrifice. You have your plain white linen for moving the ashes. And then you have just normal clothes for carrying those ashes outside the camp. Now, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest <clears throat> is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. So let's make some observations. All right, obviously, the fire must not go out. It says it three times, which means the boundary between God and his people must always be maintained. When Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden, God put a flaming sword and cherubim to guard the way back into God's presence. Humanity no longer has free and easy access to God's life-giving presence. And so for the Israelites, when they come to the door of the tabernacle, they are symbolically returning to the doorway of Eden. There is fire in your way. And beyond that, there is a veil with cherubim and great, uh, sorry, embroidered uh, on the curtain. Like we've come back to the gate of Eden to make a sacrifice. Beyond that, the fact that the altar is always burning, it means that God's, you know, the ability to come and make things right with God is always available to you. And beyond that, in the next story we'll get to next week, we learn that the fire that's burning on the altar is actually started by God. Fire comes out of his glory and consumes the sacrifice. So from, from that day onwards, from the inauguration day onwards, this fire actually represents the fire of God's presence among his people. God is now always with us, symbolized by this fire. Our God is a consuming fire. 
onwards. Now these are the regulations for the grain offering. Aaron's sons are to bring it before Yahweh in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of the finest flour and some olive oil, together with all of the incense. Some of your Bibles read frankincense. Quick question, does anyone know what frankincense is? I didn't, I didn't think so until I saw it on YouTube. Let me tell you about frankincense. It comes from a tree that grows in parts of Africa and the Middle East. And frankincense is hardened resin, sap from this tree that when burned makes this really great smell. You can go on Amazon and you can buy frankincense if you want to. All right, that's what the Bible's talking about. So there's incense on the grain offering and you are gonna burn a memorial portion on the altar as an aroma that pleases Yahweh. <clears throat> Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it. But it is to be eaten without yeast in the sanctuary area or in the holy area. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I've given it as their share of the food offerings presented to me. We're going to see a lot of eating language. Hope you're not too hungry yet. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, it is most holy, and any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. For all the generations to come, it is his perpetual share of the food offerings presented to Yahweh. Whatever touches them will become holy. Yahweh also said to Moses, this is the offering Aaron and his sons are to bring to Yahweh on the day he is anointed. As of right now in the story, we don't even have priests. We've just been told about them. The inauguration ceremony is next week. So this is background information for what we will be reading. But we read that a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour, so like about a two liter bottle's worth or a, a day's amount of grain, as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning, half in the evening, it has to be prepared with oil on a griddle, bring it well mixed, and present the grain offering broken in pieces as an aroma pleasing to Yahweh. If you're going to be a priest in Israel, you got to know how to make pancakes or something similar. All right, the one who is to succeed him as the anointed priest shall prepare it. It is Yahweh's perpetual share, and it's to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. Okay, observations about the grain or tribute offering. First of all, God designates part of what is his for those who serve him. Literally, he, the worker is worth the wages. And the priests are expected to be worshipers themselves. In the morning and in the evening, they bring their own offering to God every day. Now, Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, to the priests, these are the regulations for the sin or the purification offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before Yahweh in the place of the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken, but if it's cooked in a bronze pot, the pot has to be scoured and rinsed with water. Any male in the priest's family may eat it. It is most holy. But any sin offering whose blood has been brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place must not be eaten. It must be burned up. You guys doing all right? Stretch your arms. Okay, legal, legal code. Like I said, it's not the most exciting, but... Check this out. First of all, we have this idea of something being most holy. So let's talk about holiness. 
All right, holiness, simply put, means to be set apart as special, not to be for everyday use. So some of us have holy, special occasion dishes. America, we have holy places like national parks. You don't get to build an Amazon warehouse at Yosemite or in Yellowstone because it's too beautiful, all right? Holy means not every day. So out of everything the Israelites have, they take a portion and designate it for God. It's a holy portion. And out of God's holy portion, he separates part for the priest. It is the holy part of the holy part. But it's more than that. Because we realize from reading this, this, is, this idea of holiness is contagious. It is transferable. Whatever touches something that is most holy becomes holy. So be careful what you set aside for God. Things that come in contact with it may need to actually be deholified. If you're offering the sin offering and its blood accidentally splatters on your coat, you're going to have to hand that thing over to the priest to go wash it in the sanctuary before it's returned to you. Be careful what happens with the holy things. And if it's in a clay pot, it has to be broken. If it's a bronze pot, it has to be scoured. There's this idea that, that something has in some way been tainted is not quite the right word, but but a, a cleansing needs to happen. And yet somehow, some way, the priest is able to eat the sins of the people of Israel. Let's go on. Now, these are the regulations of the guilt offering, which is most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Its blood is to be splashed against the sides of the altar. All its fat shall be offered. Here's a list. Verse 5, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to Yahweh. It's a guilt offering. Any male in the priest's family may eat it, but it must be eaten in the sanctuary area. It is most holy. There's that word again. The same law applies to both the sin offering and the guilt offering, meaning, you know, the blood splatters and all that. They belong to the priest who makes atonement with them. The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep its hide for himself which does not belong here. The burnt offering was earlier. Why is this little detail set aside by itself? It's almost as if the biblical author wants to just shock us and say, wait a second. Do I know anything about people who receive the skin of an animal offered to atone for sins? And we have a, we have a human in an area that has been specially prepared for God. It, it looks like a garden. There's cherubim and there's trees embroidered everywhere, lots of gold. It looks like the Garden of Eden. And now in this space, we have specially designated humans who live there, the priests, almost like Adam and Eve in the garden, who are now given skins to wear from the sacrifice that covers for sin. I don't know if this is ringing any bells, but I think the biblical authors are using language to help line stories up to make us meditate upon them. To continue, every grain offering baked in an oven or cooked in a pan or on a griddle belongs to the priest who offers it. So it's not sweetened, but if you had a donut, it belongs to the priest. And every grain offering, whether mixed with olive oil or dry, like a bulk offering, is shared equally with all Aaron's sons, all the priests. Okay, observations. Again, this is sacramental, which means what we see happening here on earth images something that is happening in heaven. So one, we hadn't yet received the regulations for the guilt offering. 
like the sin offering, things that come in contact with it, may need to actually be deholified. And again, the priests can take the guilt of others into themselves. Almost as if we realize that humanity needs someone to go between us and God who can bear the sins and the guilt of the people inside himself, in his own body. Almost as if that needed to happen. And if you're not picking up where I'm going, I'm talking about Jesus, because that's exactly what he does for us. And all that is pictured in this random regulation back here in chapter 7. For those of you who are closing your eyes, yeah, it's not the most important thing. And yet, and yet we're given a story that pictures something amazing. These are the regulations for the fellowship offering. Anyone may present to Yahweh. So first we have regulations. These are to the priests. This is going to be an interlude, and then we're going to have more fellowship instructions for the Israelites. And God is going to make things clear. Who gets what? If they offer as an expression of thankfulness, then along with a thank offering, they are to offer thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, thin loaves with olive oil mixed in, uh, brushed with oil, and thick loaves of the finest flour, well kneaded and with oil mixed in. Basically, for, you know, and then he goes on, along with their fellowship offering of thanksgiving, they are to present an offering with thick loaves of bread made with yeast. So if you want to come and say, thank you, God, you have four different types of ceremonial bread you need to bake. All right. And you're going to bring one of each of them as an offering, a con- contribution to Yahweh that belongs to the priest who splashes the blood of the fellowship offerings against the altar. Again, you bring your sacrifice. Here you go, priest. Here are four different types of bread for you. And the meat of their fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it until morning. So you better have a party because I don't know how much you can eat, but an animal tends to be a lot of meat and it's got to be gone within like 24 hours. So invite your neighbors, invite your friends. This is where we find out that a peace offering is a party in God's presence. If you want to say thank you to God, you get to bring your animal. Some goes to God, some goes to the priest and you, your neighbors and your relatives enjoy a meal in God's presence, celebrating that you now have fellowship with God. It's like the ancient equivalent of our modern-day potlucks, only perhaps even better. All right? If, however, the offering is a result of a vow or a free will offering, a just because, the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day they offer it, but anything left over may be eaten on the next day. Now, any meat of the sacrifice left over on the third day must not be eaten. It must be burned up. If any of the meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day, the one who offered it will not be accepted. Would everyone say, be not be accepted? I know, I said the word be there. I, I tripped you up. It should have just been not be accepted. Thank you. You're awake. I'm glad. It will not be reckoned to their credit. It has become impure. The person who eats any of it will be held responsible. Meat. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. It has become tainted. As for the other meat, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to Yahweh, they must be cut off from their people. Anyone who touches something unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or an unclean creature that moves along the ground and then eats of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to Yahweh, he must be cut off from their people. So what we learn is this idea that uncleanness itself is also contagious. It's transferable. And whatever you do, don't let the unclean and the holy come into contact. 
If you are unclean and you enter God's presence and you take of a sacrificial meat, you will be cut off from your people. Watch out. Which means that in our passage, we have two groups of people who are told what to eat and what not to eat and are warned, if you eat it, you will die. Almost like we've heard a story before about people who have been brought close to God to enjoy his fellowship and his presence in a special place prepared by God who are given instructions of what to eat and what not to eat because if you eat of the wrong thing, you will die. We are back to Eden again. And it's scary because we have an inverted echo of Abram. That whole word, you know, it will not be credited to you. It won't be reckoned to your account. We don't see that word very often. But some of us remember it from Genesis 15. When Abraham trusted in God, it was credited to him as righteousness. God says, if you screw this up, I won't credit anything to your account. Save guilt. Are we going to trust and obey God's word? Will we approach him and enjoy fellowship with him on his terms? Or are we going to rebel and do things our own way? Yahweh said to Moses, now say to the Israelites, we've been talking to the priests, now to everybody else. Let's make things clear. First of all, don't eat any of the fat of cattle, sheep, or goats. We're not talking hyper lean meat. We're like, don't eat the suet, the really hard fat. All right, the fat of the animal found dead or torn by wild beasts. I mean, you can use it for any other purpose. Do whatever you want to do, but you must not eat it. I have no idea what you do with the fat of an animal. Some of you creative types can tell me, but Whatever you do, don't eat it. Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which a food offering may be presented to Yahweh you must be cut off from their people. And wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. Anyone who eats blood must be cut off from their people. No blood, no fat. Okay? And Yahweh said to Moses, say to the Israelites, anyone who brings a fellowship offering to Yahweh is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to Yahweh. All right, if you want to sacrifice an animal, you bring part of it as an offering to Yahweh. With your own hands, no one else gets to do it for you. You present the food offering to Yahweh. You're going to bring the fat together with the breast of the animal and wave the breast before Yahweh as a wave offering. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You might call it a temple tax, if you will. Part of this animal goes to feed the priests. And you're going to give the right thigh of your fellowship offering or the right shoulder to the priest as a contribution. So the son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. So out of, out of the offering, part of it goes to the general crowd and part of it goes to the person who's doing the work, whose hands are getting dirty, so to speak. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I, God, have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and I've given them to Aaron and the priest and to his sons, as their perpetual share from the Israelites. So, Yahweh makes it very clear what belongs to him and what belongs to the priests, in general and in particular. What belongs to them as a group, what belongs to them as an individual. All right? So, one, this is background information for other stories you're going to go and read. When you get to 1 Samuel and you wonder, why does God freak out on Eli and on his sons? This is the context that tells you that what they're doing is super bad. But more than that, God also just makes it clear to say, this is what they're entitled to. Anything taken out beyond it, they don't, they don't get. God is, is apportioning what these people get. And remember, the priests, they don't deserve to be here. 
Aaron, the high priest, he made the golden calf. What is that guy doing here? And yet these people are welcomed into God's presence and then graced with abundant food in the presence of God. It's a perpetual sign of grace that they're even there. And so this is the portion of the food offerings presented to Yahweh that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day they were presented to serve Yahweh as priests. And we'll get to that passage next week. We haven't even seen it yet. On the day they were anointed, Yahweh commanded the Israelites to give to them as their perpetual share for the generations to come this food. And so here are the regulations, the burnt grain, sin, guilt, ordination offering, and fellowship offering. And no, the ordination offering was not listed. Those regulations are back in Exodus 29. And Yahweh gave Moses on Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to Yahweh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. All right, everyone say, woo! Yeah. There are two stories in the book of Leviticus. Next week, we get into one of them. All right, some of this is a little bit thick, unless you're a lawyer and maybe you really love this kind of stuff. But again, it, it presents a picture it gives us things to meditate on. And, and God's people have said, this is scripture to teach us even when there was no tabernacle, even when there was no temple, even when these offerings no longer are being given, there's something here that we can see. So again, God provides for those who serve him. Worshiping Yahweh includes provisions for those who are serving. God says, if you would serve me, take care of those who are doing my work. Almost as if by loving our neighbor, we are loving God. Another thing that we see is this idea of contagiousness. Holiness and uncleanness are both contagious. So if you are an Israelite, there are two different states that you can be in. You can be holy or you can be, in the King James, profane, which isn't a curse word. It just means common. All right? You can be special or normal. And in a normal state... You can be clean or unclean. So if we think about this like a teeter-totter, for those of you with small children, on one side you have holiness, on the other side you have uncleanness, and both of those pull the middle. All right, which way are we going to go? But whenever holiness and uncleanness come into contact, sparks fly, and life, holiness from God, swallows up death. Uncleanness never wins out for those things that are really, really holy. They get swallowed up. They get killed. It'd be like being in a tug-of-war with a black hole. You're not going to win. So be careful because what belongs to God, life and death and everything, will be taken up. If you go into God's holy presence and you touch these things while you are unclean, you may die. There was a sacrifice to not, not die. But there's a stern warning here. Be careful. The God who in creation made distinctions and separations between light and dark and the waters and the land and the sea makes a distinction here now between what is holy and what is common, between what is clean and what is unclean. And I think to, you know, finish up chapters 1 through 7, we see those brought near to God, those brought near to help others draw near to God, enjoy great privileges and immense responsibility. All right, this is where I want to land the plane today. Those who brought near to God enjoy great privileges and immense responsibility because we're given both the priests and the Israelites are told, this is what you can eat, this is what you can't eat. 
This is what is a gift to you, and these are the consequences if you don't listen to my voice. God is with you. If you're a priest, you have been brought near the presence of God, and the work that you do to worship God just provides you with more food than you could possibly need all the time. You are decked out in finery that you don't deserve, close to the presence of God, enjoying abundant food in his presence. You don't deserve to be there, but by God's grace, you are there, so pay attention. To the rest of the Israelites, you live with God in your camp. You are close to the life-giving source of everything. You are blessed to be a blessing to the entire world. What a privilege you have. Don't come and eat sacrificial meat while you're unclean. Don't screw this up. You will be cut off from your people. And when we remember the book of Genesis, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they died, it was said they were gathered to their people. And now we're told that you might be cut off from your people. That could be rather serious. Let's not do that. Now, it's kind of a big jump to launch from the Israelites in the tabernacle in the wilderness up through the story of Jesus and us Gentiles 2,000 years plus later. But it's still true that those who are brought near to God enjoy great privileges and great responsibilities. You enjoy great privileges and great responsibilities. I enjoy great privileges and great responsibilities. The holy God no longer lives in a tent. Now he comes to live in you and in the person sitting next to you. God, who made a distinction between what is clean and unclean because of Jesus said good enough and he moved in, even though we are still messed up people because God sees us as already made complete in Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit is now in us. We are clean with a kind of cleanness that nothing can taint. Or as Paul would say, I'm convinced neither death nor life or anything can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do we handle our privileges? How do we handle our responsibilities? Well, let's take care of the responsibility of being close to God. Or as the Bible would say, let us fear God meaning not be scared of the guy, but like an electrician has a healthy fear for the life-giving current that he deals with every day, let us be careful of our holy God. Because we are a holy people. We have been set apart for something special. We have been bought through the blood of Jesus. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. If you are Christ, that means that every part of your life, every part of my life is affected. The food we eat the things we drink, the way we have sex, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, all of life falls under the lordship of Christ. So in the New Testament, Paul tells the church, be careful what you eat and drink. Don't make your brother stumble. Uh, To the Corinthian church, he says, because of the ways that you guys are celebrating communion and some of the church are having a wild party and getting intoxicated and others in the church are starving, God has actually killed some people in this church. Yes, they will be saved in eternity, but there's still a judgment. Be careful how you eat and drink. To Ananias and Sapphira, you guys, you know, sold a field and you lied about how you were spending your money. And there was a judgment that came on them. All right, when it comes to sex, as Christians, we say sex is a good gift from God that belongs in the confines of a marital covenant between one man and one woman for life. And anything outside of that, it doesn't belong. Why? Because we are a holy people it's, it's not about us anymore. It, it's, you know, it's one thing if non-Jesus followers are doing all that, fine. But if you're a Jesus follower, if God lives inside you, then 
that changes things. It just changes things. Now, I can't talk about contributions to the priesthood without just acknowledging the fact that worshiping God includes financial giving. I don't normally talk about this. I really try to react strongly against the televangelist line. But again, God is much more comfortable talking about these kind of topics than I am. So let's just own it, all right? Everyone can give, just period. In fact, one of the most famous givers of all time was this little old lady at the temple who put 50 cents or, you know, two whatever a penny was back then into the offering box. And Jesus saw her and told his disciples she gave more than anyone else because that's all that she had to live on. One of the most famous givers, commended by the Lord Jesus himself, all right? It's not about how much you can give, it's that you do give. Because if the Lordship of Jesus has not yet touched our bank account, then we don't really trust him. And so when we give, we are making a tangible sign to say, God, this hurts, but I'm going to trust that what I have comes from you, that you are a good father who will take care of my needs, that you have given me the ability to work, the ability to earn income, that you will take care of me. And so I return back again to you something that you have already blessed me with. Or as Paul tells the Corinthian church, hey, you guys are going to be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every occasion. And through your generosity, it's going to result in thanksgiving to God. God will be worshiped when we are generous. So, my dear friends, support Family of Grace, all right, for one. It supports me. Some of you still remember when I didn't work for the church, and I gave all the time that I could give and the rest of the time I had to actually earn income to provide for my family and the fact that I have been brought on and you guys support me enables me to give a huge amount of my time to serving this church. Sterling and Courtney volunteer a ton of time, but they don't get paid for it. So there comes a, a line where they say, I can't give anymore. Some of you guys are at that place. You're like, you're giving all that you can give. So I am supported by your gifts. Others are supported by your gifts. You are supported. If you like heat or air conditioning or our kids to be in a safe place, all of these things are taken care of. Again, worshiping God includes every area of your life, money included. So let's own it. But when we're talking about responsibility, let me own that leadership within the church carries greater responsibility and privileges and therefore greater accountability. All right, so eyes on me and Sterling and perhaps me even more. Again, this is what I make. So you can give to the church, and my, this doesn't change, so go for it. Uh, you know, this is, this is what I spend. And the reason I, I just want to point that out is, one, James says, not many of you should become teachers. You will be held to a stricter judgment. It's what I want. Like, I, I want to be a teacher, and I want to live at a higher plane of accountability. I think that's right, but I also want to be careful of it. So you guys, when you see me, you should see me giving. You should see me worshiping. You should see you know, me living a life worthy of imitation. And if you don't, call me out. <clears throat> and if I'm out of line, call me out. Because if Supreme Court justices make headline news when potentially there's a conflict of interest going on, then you all deserve better than to have some greasy pastor getting his fingers into your money. Like, I don't want that. And I had a friend who did this for me about a year and a half ago. His name was Drew. 
I was hanging out with some of the guys who are part of the church body, and I bought coffee, and then Drew's like, dude, you used the church card for that. That wasn't a church meeting. You should pay for that. And I went, darn it, you're right. So I repented, and I paid the money, and we went on, because I'd rather deal with you than deal with him. <laughs> so help me out. All right, this, this is kind of my commitment. God, if, if clarity is caring, then God cares for his people by saying, hey, this and no further. You know, if you're a part of Family of Grace, you saw those numbers. You voted on them back in, in January. We have a finance team because I don't want to handle your finances. Please know. Thank God I'm not an accountant. And you guys can thank God too that I'm not your accountant. <laughs> All right. So we've been talking responsibility. Like we, we have the responsibility before a holy God to live differently than the world. All right, there's certain behaviors that just don't belong here. But remember, we are close to God, which brings immense privileges. We got to remember that, that it is good to be near the source of life and blessing. Let us enjoy it. All right, God is the source of all life, creativity. Like anything beautiful that you see out there, he made and he has better ideas than that. So God gives us hope. Jesus rose from the dead. It changes not only our hope for the future, it changes our life in the present. Because one day what began at Easter will happen to the entire world. Everything will be renewed and redeemed and our work will actually matter. It doesn't just go away because the one who's bringing all things to fulfillment sees it, knows it, and will establish it. We have hope. And that is a very good thing because this world is in desperate need of hope. We have joy. We have peace with God and with one another. I mean, truly, Jesus wasn't making it up when he said, everyone will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. If we could just get along, it would clearly show the world that God is among us because no one else in the world has managed to do this for any great length of time. We have an identity in Jesus Christ. Not that we always avail ourselves of the identity. Some of us are pretty messed up individuals and we really struggle here. And that's okay. But the resources that have been provided to us in Jesus Christ are unparalleled. Oh, to be secure, not because of what we have to make of ourselves, but because of what Jesus has said we are. We belong to him. We can have self-control. We have God's blessings. There is nothing like life in Jesus. So let us thank God for his generosity. He has provided for us. He's promised to provide for us. Don't be anxious. Don't freak out. God has your back. All right? I don't know what tax season looks like for you right now, but God will take care of you. And one of the key ways he does it is through your people. If you have a need, let us know. Some of us would like to help. He takes care of those who serve him. Always. Always. He's faithful. So, in light of this idea of a peace offering, of having a banquet with God, I would invite you guys to a practice this week or in the coming month to enjoy hospitality as worship. Have someone over. Show up at a potluck and bring the best. I knew a lady who didn't necessarily want to contribute money to the church, but when it came time for potluck, she showed up with everything she had. I mean, she'd bring $200 to the meal in the form of meat. And again, there's some stuff to work out with her, but she, there was one thing about it that she really got right, is that there is something to say worship as hospitality. 
that when we entertain the stranger, the foreigner, the widow, the blind, the lame, when we love one another so that there's no needs among us, when we celebrate God's goodness together, it is worship. Just like it was in ancient Israel to the priest and to the the people around the tabernacle, so it is now when we open our homes and we bless one another around the table and celebrate God's goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be worship, and I would welcome you to it. And so, in anticipation of this, I got you guys chocolate. <clears throat> and yes, I used my pastoral expenses fund to do it. So, would you guys pass that around? So take, uh, honestly, you guys can take two. We got enough, I think. So eat one and enjoy the goodness of it. For one, you guys provided it. And as you do, like this is just a little bit of return. Why? Because you guys are priests of God too. Because you have been made a kingdom of priests. You now represent Jesus to the world. And so in a little way, I'm just showing you like God is good. And anytime I compare the goodness of God with chocolate, I do so. All right? It's worth it. It's worth it. He gets a bad rap these days. We have the idea that he is this cold, stodgy, wheelchair-rocking, grumpy grandfather ready to whip us kids into the line. He's not. He's good. He's gracious. He is abounding in life and generosity. And yeah, that, that abundance of life is dangerous at times, but oh, he's good. He's good. And so as we just share chocolate together, for those of you who are here, for those of you online, you should show up next time. I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> let's remember that God takes care of those who serve him. He knows our needs before we even ask. That one day... When Christ returns, we will sit down to dine in God's presence forever. The the wedding supper of the Lamb will come. And that this whole story is going to a place where we will enjoy a meal with God forever. And then get to work. The work that he has prepared for us to do. Knowing that our Father who loves us will always take care of our needs. He will always provide for us. So may we take seriously the joy and responsibility of our holy life together today. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good and you love us. God, thank you for Leviticus. Thank you for these rules and regulations, one that we don't have to keep anymore. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus who knows that we, we can't handle, um, we just couldn't handle it. God, despite how gracious and how wise these rules are, our hearts were unable to live up to them. And so you had to do something new. I thank you for Christ who has kept everything perfectly on our behalf, that has made a way for you to dwell not only with us, but in us. Uh, And God, as, as we read these, may we reflect on your goodness. May we learn more of your character. May we commit ourselves to holy living so that others may see our good deeds and give you glory and praise you forever. God, thank you for the privilege of being able to represent you to the world. And I pray that as people look at our life individually and together, that they would say, wow, God, really is among them, that you might receive glory, that you might be praised, and that we might be blessed. Thank you, Father, this morning. In Christ's name, amen.